Welcome to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your co-host. In just a moment, I'll be joined by Jacob Smith, the rector at Calvary St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. He and I will be your guide every Tuesday to a grace-infused, cosmopolitan look at the lectionary passages for the week. We'll do our best to help both pastors and churchgoers alike to connect the never-changing truth of God's grace as found in these texts with what feels like an ever-changing and sometimes confusing world, and we'll do that all in 25 minutes or less. Jake, once more into the breach, my friend, we have, we're singing the same old song yet another week. We're several episodes into this endeavor, and you have already renamed the liturgical season Epiphany. What are we calling it now? Uh, we're calling it Eureka. And the color it's is a, Paisley. Uh, Paisley, absolutely. Or we could color. also call this season now uh, the liturgical season of Revelation, and um, and because that's what we're all receiving here. Because the truth is, is that you know, uh, you can grope around and try and find and discover God all you'd like, but uh, to know the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, this must be revealed to you. This must be epiphanied to you, if you will. And um, we dive right in to our Old Testament reading, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. Um, this is a this is a very powerful uh, passage. Um in, in the previous chapter, um, Isaiah chapter 7, uh, Isaiah for the first time meets King Ahaz, and literally um, Zebulun and Naphtali, they were the northern tribes in the north, they are within weeks of Isaiah meeting King Ahaz, sacked and destroyed by Assyria. Uh, they um, were uh, probably two of the least faithful tribes. If we were going to measure faithfulness by a measuring stick, they would be right up at the top, and uh, they are... Uh, succumb to Assyria and fall to God's judgment using Assyria right away. And so during a very gloomy time, Isaiah delivers to them an epiphany. And it's funny that you say like they're the, the least fa- fa- faithful because like in Game of Thrones, the people that are furthest in the north seem to be like really, you know, the nice people, or at least <laughs> as likable as you can get in Game of Thrones. Yeah, but. Sure. Although once you get beyond the wall, you know if you if you live if you live below the wall, you're all southerners. So, but the wall that's beyond, true. The wall is really the wall. Yeah. <laughs> it's in it. That wall is huge. It's a big wall. Yeah, <laughs> the wall that keeps the the the, the northerners the, the the wildlings out. It's a it's a huge wall. It's a wonderful wall. It's beautiful. But when I think of the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, I definitely think of the wildlings and the land above the north. It was a crazy place, uh, uh, just uh, filled with, uh, uh, you know, they belong to the first men, but there's like a mix of all this weird kind of religions and different things going on up there. And this is kind of the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. They had walked away from the covenant, and... Um, and uh, they had uh, walked in darkness but uh, and fallen to darkness, and this is a gloomy time. But into that, Isaiah says that you will see a great light, and uh, those who have lived in the, on light has shined on them. And so what he is promising them is a Messiah, one who's going to come and deliver them. 
and increase their joy. Now, what probably was running through their mind was a Gideon type. What was probably running through their mind was a new kind of David. Uh, But uh, one was coming, uh, David's greater son, who we'll talk about in a minute, um, uh, a new Joshua uh, was going to come and be the one to uh, take their burden and uh, bar it across his shoulders. So, um, very powerful stuff. Yeah, and it is interesting too, right? Because here, you know, there there's this message that you know it's it's kind of always darkest before the dawn, right? But Ahaz, I I think sometimes it's better off, as Frank Lake says, you know, that that when the bottom gets knocked out of your humanity, it ruins it as a bucket. If you think your humanity is something that should contain something good, it ruins it for that. But if you when the buck when the bottom gets knocked out of your humanity, well. You stink as a bucket. You're great for a channel for the life and energy of God Himself. And I think that it's like for these very northernmost tribes, the bottom is dropped out. Right? They don't need a good advice. They need good news. Like they're not. They don't need. They don't need preventative medicine. They need resurrected. Yeah. But Ahaz, you know, if you give people, you know, an inch, they'll take a mile with regard to self reliance. And so, you know, because you know, even though the writing's on the wall. In some sense, it, it, I don't need that hope because, you know, yeah. we've got some geopolitical alliances going on that, you know, I mean, that hope, hope, hope is all well and good and all, but, you know. Yeah, Egypt will help us. So, exactly. But, <laughs> yeah. But I think, uh, you know, you address this text, if you're preaching on Isaiah alone, you have to tie it into the Matthew's gospel reading for sure, which we'll touch on in a moment. But it is, it's a really good thing to really, I think, and parishioners will find this interesting to set this, the geopolitical stage of what's going on here and, uh, and why um, Isaiah's prophecies, one, uh, would have been so telling, but two, why they would have been so... They're not, they're not comforting in the moment. I'm sure everybody who heard this was like, are you kidding? Did you just see what happened? But, um, but uh, indeed, they deliver comfort because they deliver a word of hope that comes from outside of us. King Ahaz, you cannot help. Naphtali, Zebulon, you cannot help. You need a word. And I think this is something that everybody, um, even in our nation right now and, and what's going on in our own country, you know, everybody's trying to, trying to help themselves and trying to, and, and what we notice is, is that we begin to like do these things. We're making a bigger, bigger hole. We're alienating ourselves farther and farther from one another. And what we really need is um, uh, not just to kind of address the temporal concerns, but what we need is a word from outside of ourselves that addresses the eternal and uh, really puts us all on the same playing field. Because when it boils down to it, we all are members of the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. But I'm going to kneel and pray every day Lest I should become vain along the way I'm just an old chunk of coal now, Lord but I'm going to be a diamond someday. Let's go straight back to Corinth. Straight out of Corinth. Crazy mother trucker named St. Paul. So, um... <laughs> oh, boy. I really should rewrite that whole rap, so... Um, you should, you should. <clears throat> I mean, I think this... So we get in here, and this is the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And uh, and the church is... One, the, cor- one, one Corinthians, not yeah. two Corinthians. <laughs> 
Yeah, one two Corinthians. Corinthians, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Yeah, that's two Corinthians. Now this is uh, this is all about division, and th- I think this really flows into what happens when we kind of sit in darkness. Uh, sitting in darkness really means looking at yourself and uh, your own belly button, and um, and uh, and this literally creates divisions. And this is where the devil is at work. Absolutely, and it's funny too because you think Paul here, you know he people are saying seem to be bragging about who they're baptized by and paul's like i'm glad i didn't baptize any of you now i think this isn't to say that you know baptism is is a bad thing or i i don't think paul rhetorically is saying that but it's like paul's all says in his church history kind of monograph amazing grace he's yeah. you know at the heart like no religion escapes its its fundamental seed dna and he thinks the dna of Christianity is three things. It's a grace having victory over the law. It's uh, w- strength through weakness. And it's the gospel intention with religion or the church, with religious practice, with religious institutions. And he thinks that whenever things are going well in the life of the church, and there's times of renewal and revival and things, and, 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 and really more abundantly gives way to vibrancy, you see the DNA kind of taking root. And when the same thing, when, when it's not going well, the law is, is primary over, uh, over the gospel or, or the law is primary over grace. Uh, the, that people begin to see strength through, through assertion and human power and religion begins to overshadow the gospel. And so here it's it's religious practice, religious identity markers. It's you know here I got my who I got my baptismal certificate. These things begin to overshadow the thing that gives them their power. I mean, I think religious mm-hmm. practice is is like the moon. It while it gives light, it's dependent light. Where at any time you know without the sun, the moon loses its its and its capacity to be a luminary. Likewise, all our religious practices without the sun become dead, lifeless, moribund kind of religiosity. Yeah. And I really think what uh, Paul is speaking here to is kind of the idea, um, you know, Luther once said, where a true church is found is where the word of God is rightly preached and the sacraments are duly administered. Uh, That is the key in the sign of a true church. And uh, what was happening in Corinth, you had these guys who were super apostles, and they were like, well, yeah, 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 you know, Peter, he's cool, or, you know, um, Apollos, he's great, Uh, St. Paul, not so much, but if you really wanted to be a Christian, you'd be baptized by me, and you would join this particular church, and uh, because we've got it all right. And and this is the thing, as you said, when uh, religion becomes overemphasized over the gospel— uh, division always occurs. You know, the gospel is ultimately the end of religion uh, because it says that all of our climbing and all of our, our attempts at perfection and perfecting ourselves before God have literally come to an end. And this, when religion becomes the main thing, then the cross, which is the end of yourself, becomes foolishness. But for those of us who are being saved, wherever that cross is being preached, give me that old-time religion as the song goes, wherever that cross is being preached, well, that's the power of God to salvation because it speaks right to where I'm at and it speaks to every circumstance of my life. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that, you know, there's this sense in which I think Paul sort of responds to their division and their self-assertion and their real 
spiritual waywardness and confusion with Christ in, in three specific ways. The wholeness of Christ, right? Mm-hmm. He says his Christ divided. Uh, so David Pryor, one of the commentators who wrote the, in the InterVarsity, I think, series, uh, the message of 1 Corinthians, he says that uh, in this Je- responding to this Jesus cannot be divided s- statement, he says we cannot have half a person as though we said, please come in, but leave your legs outside. This incidentally throws light on such common phrases as wanting more of Christ. It cannot be. We should rather be allowing Christ to have more of us. We are the disintegrated ones whom Christ is gradually making whole so that we become more like him, integrated and entire. The same argument applies to wanting more of the Holy Spirit. If he is personal, a person, then we either have him living within us or we do not. Again, our desire and prayer should be for the Holy Spirit to have more of us. I think that really gets at a lot of religious wrong thinking mm. in modern Christianity. And so he, the wholeness of Christ, uh, and also the second argument against disunity is rooted in the cross of Christ, mm. and which is the real wisdom of God. And lastly, the last argument is the lordship of Christ. You know, they belong not to who they were baptized to, but to the whole Christ crucified for them, who is their shepherd, not the under-shepherds. That's really powerful, and you know, and I think that that and that whole Christ, I would say that as Protestants, you know, uh, Reformational Protestants, we would both agree that 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 whole Christ comes to us today in the the, the right preaching of the gospel. Uh, he comes to us today when we're baptized, and uh, you know, and ourselves are then found in Him in His fullness, and uh, and then finally He comes like that whole Christ comes to us in communion and at the table where uh, we we kneel with others who are completely outside of the world, different than us, but we call brothers and sisters in this place. Yeah, and you know, this idea of like Christ as our, as the, as the real wisdom, you know, as opposed to the wisdom of the world, I think that there's this great passage in Love Alone is Credible by Von Balthasar, and he says this, that neither religious philosophy nor existence can provide the criterion for the genuineness of Christianity. In philosophy, man discovers what is humanly knowable about the depths of being. In existence, man lives out what is humanly livable. But Christianity disappears the moment it allows itself to be dissolved into a transcendental precondition of human self-understanding in thinking or living, knowledge or deed. I think that is completely, completely rock solid. Yes. And one other quotation for those that are emphasizing this passage, or one other. Uh, Ch- this is from G.K. Chester- Chesterton's Orthodoxy. In a chapter called The Maniac, he says, as we have taken the circle as the symbol of reason and madness, we may very well take the cross as the symbol at once of mystery and of health. Buddhism is centripetal, but mm. Christianity is centrifugal. It breaks out. For the circle is perfect and infinite in its nature, but is fixed forever in its size. It can never be larger or smaller, but the cross... Though it has at its heart a collision and a contradiction, can extend its four arms forever without altering its shape. Wow. Because, it a, a, because it has a paradox in its center, it can grow without changing. The circle returns upon itself and is bound. The cross opens up its arms to the four winds. It is a signpost for free travelers. That is beautiful. G.K. Chesterton, my friend. Rise and follow me. I'll make you worthy. Rise and follow me. I'll 
I'll make you fishers of men. Peter, John, and James could never be the same. After they heard him say, I'll make you fishers of men. He said, Rise and follow me. And that brings us right into the Gospel of Matthew, I think, where we see that collision and expansion happening all at once. And uh, this is where the prophet Isaiah's prophecy of Zebulun and Naphtali is fulfilled. And so we come to Matthew's Gospel, and Jesus has just heard that his cousin John has been arrested. Uh, the great prophet, and uh, and so he withdraws and goes to Galilee, and uh, and settles up there. Yeah, and it it connects actually, right? It's very, well, it's very interesting too, that it, you know if you were selling a book or promoting a movie or something, or you know you're promoting a pro, you know a, something you just did, you want to be on the Oprah Book Club, or you want to be with Matt Lauer on the Today Show, or if you're me, you'd want to be in Howard Stern's studio, but. It's interesting, Jesus now, after we, we, we've had Jesus' ministry is, is really beginning here. And what does he do? He's right, he is, he, is, he is in the big apple of his day, of his corner of the world. He's in the south, in Jerusalem, and he hightails it north yep. to what seems like a pretty remote place. So is Jesus in desperate need of a publicist? Well, I, I think that actually what's happening here, Scott, is that... Uh, that, um, well, we both would agree, is that Jesus is doing what he's come to do, and that is to make the first last, and the last shall be first. And it's interesting that Zebulun and Naphtali, um, they were the first to fall under the Assyrians, but it's not like after the captivity they ever reformed their ways. This was still like a hotbed hot of, of, um, of mixing, and uh, the mixing of cultures, and mixing of religions, which was forbidden in that part of in, in Israel period. And so here Jesus got, comes to them, uh, those who are still sitting in darkness, and they had been sitting in darkness since Assyria. Um, God is coming to them. And so the first place that he goes to reveal his light is the first place that has fallen under darkness. And he goes and he has a very spe- specific message. It's not, hey, everybody, I'm here. Just want you to know that I love you. Um, uh, you know, you guys are doing great. You're basically okay. No, he comes in and his message is repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, this is very important. Repent. We all know what that means. It means to turn 90 degrees. And then, but the kingdom of God has come near. And this is a very. No, wait. It means, it means to turn 180 degrees. That's what I meant. What did I say? One, one eight. You see, you're double minded. You're, <laughs> you're, ha- you're half hearted in your repentance, my friend. It's 180 uh, degrees or nothing. What did I say? You 90? said it, 90. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. You're, yeah, man. I mean, you're, yeah. Nope. Well, I am an Episcopalian. So anyway, exactly. <laughs> yeah, for Episcopalian, anything over 85 is just <laughs> that's obscene. hard work, man. That's hard work. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but um, no, he comes in and he says, "Repent." And so that's 180 for most of you. For Episcopalians, it's 85. And so, but the kingdom of God has come near. And this is this is something that a lot of people get confused by. And that is this idea of the kingdom of God. And I can't tell you how many people I hear talking about ushering in the kingdom of God or partnering with the kingdom of God. And it's a complete misnomer because Jesus is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the kingdom of God. The kingdom in, in the Old Testament was God's people in God's place under God's reign. 
And so here you have in Jesus, the new Israel doing his thing, coming and being the light unto those who sat in darkness, being the light unto the nations. And so come and repent, follow me and worship Yahweh rightly. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think that that yeah, this it's very interesting. And to you know can do that, that at eighty five percent. I mean, I, I mean, <laughs> you can probably do it sixty five percent and get on the vestry a lot of places. But uh, the in uh, a commentary on the lectionary on this passage, uh, a guy named Andre Resner, who actually wrote a book called Preacher and Cross, which is quite good, said that the phrase from the time Jesus began is followed by the infinitive to preach. Mm. This identical phrase appears again in 1621 in Matthew, this time with the infinitive to show following. Now comes the content of the preaching or showing. Even though the phrase appears but twice in Matthew, it has the look of a formula introducing something of major importance. Some students of Matthew's gospel see it as an important indicator of Matthew's view of the unfolding of Jesus' ministry. In any case, Jesus began to preach, and the public work of Jesus is defined as preaching the nearness of the kingdom of God. In all too many cases, the term preaching has associations with scolding, harping or on moral platitudes, or dwelling on the obvious or the irrelevant. In the scriptures, however, to preach, keruso in the Greek, is not to deal in shop-worn or second-hand goods, but to announce as a herald the news that is both gut-wrenching and glad beyond all expectation. Yeah, it's powerful. And so, and he starts announcing this news, and he goes to the Sea of Galilee, where he gathers these two brothers, Simon, Peter, and Andrew. And, uh, and there they are, they're casting their nets out to sea, they're fishermen. This isn't the typical person that a rabbi would call to be his students, but uh, this is whom he calls. Usually they wanted the best in Jerusalem. So it's interesting, you know, indeed, maybe he did need a publicist. Maybe he did need a consultant because he is up there and not doing things the way they should be done. If he was looking for students, he'd be down in Jerusalem to follow him. But instead he goes up and he gathers these fishermen and he tells them something very unique. He says, follow me and I will make you fish for people, you know, and, uh, and, A lot of people wonder what this means, and I once heard Paul Zoll preach this, and it was very powerful, and it said, to be a fisher of people means that you are one who is known by God, and uh, that for the first time in your life, you might be truly interested in other people. And uh, this is what it is to uh, be a fisher of people. This is what a Christian witness is all about. It's about being interested in knowing someone else. And in knowing someone else, you might introduce them to the one who already knows them. Yeah, and what a privilege it, it is. Really, I mean, that, that's that's a powerful way. It's completely, I always heard fishers be a fisher, you know, are you fishing for people? Get out there and like call them to repentance. And, you know, and it was a very, like like the commentary that you read said, a very terrifying thing. It was a very aggressive thing. And, uh, and that, just to be one who's truly interested in people. Um, and where they're at, that is a calling, and uh, that really has the power to hook people um, in the heart and bring them into the boat. And and I think that the way, you know, and I think the way that they're fishing, um, when I was a kid, I used to fish a lot on the canal banks, and um, and uh, there would be these huge carps and stuff. It's probably not the same thing they were fishing for, but you know, the truth is, is that I, I didn't know this. I was, but but fish can actually see behind them. 
And if you really want to catch fish, um, you know, it's best to come up with, if you're not using bait to come up from underneath them, cause that's the one place they cannot see. So from the bottom up, you know, um, and, uh, it's, it's extremely counterintuitive, but here they are. And this is what God has done by going to Naphtali and Zebulun first there on the sea of Galilee. He's working from the bottom and pulling them up, not from the top down. And this is the proclaiming of the good news. Amen to that, my friend. And we will catch you all next week. Awesome. Thanks for listening to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. To find out more about Mockingbird, head on over to our website, mbird.com. And if you've got thoughts or feedback, insights you'd like to share, this is a new endeavor, so we'd love to hear them. You send me an email at scottjones at mbird.com. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.